0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the What Happens in Aspen edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. I did not happen in Aspen. I did not go to Aspen.
0: I was happening in Aspen. You
1: were happening in Aspen, tomorrow Kaufman was.
0: But it's lovely to be back with you, Shane, in humid, sickly, disgusting Washington. You don't have to lie to me.
1: It's fine. It's fine. You can tell me the truth. It was beautiful. The sun was shining. You probably like went on like bike rides and like. I- did they have those insane granola buffets set up? I was there once last year, and they had like this build-your-own granola and trail mix buffet.
0: Wow, there was a trail mix buffet, <laughs> I admit it. But um, sadly, I did not do any biking, hiking, tennis, golf, but I did wake up in the morning with the Aspen Music Festival playing just hundreds oh of God. feet away just from my you. window, just for me.
1: Your personal soundtrack in Aspen. <laughs> wow, so glad you're back. Um I'm also joined by my friend Benjamin Wittes, who also did not go to Aspen.
2: You know, excluded from Aspen, but holding my head up high. Yeah. I was here, I was proud, and, uh, I even unchurlishly posted all the videos of the Aspen Security you did. Forum to Lawfare ignoring the fact that they had excluded me utterly um, I will not be so gracious next year Ooh. Ooh,
0: you know you could have come as a spouse
2: oh that's
1: true you could have oh how humiliating that would <laughs> hey, be Right. Oh, Ben, you're here. Not really.
0: <laughs> Next time, you can come as a spouse.
1: Ben Wittis, wallflower. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I'm not able to imagine that ever. That, yet, I don't think so. Um, okay, this week on the podcast, we are going to talk some things Aspen. But first, uh, is notorious Taliban leader Mullah Omar dead again? Uh, and then we're going to talk about people talking smack at the Aspen Security Forum on the threat of ISIS, the real truth about encryption, uh, it got very, uh, heated even at some point. Maybe not heated. Heated for a bunch of national
0: Robust. Sports, anyway. It was a robust debate. It be. was a
1: robust discussion. Plus, in our object lessons, uh, Shane is heading off to paradise. And Tamara has some sponsor swag we're gonna talk about as well. Um, why don't we start with your wordplay, Tamara, about, uh, the one-eyed monster
0: mullah Uh, Mullah omar Omar
1: and whether he is dead or
2: alive so
0: you know i do feel a little bit it reminded me when i woke up this morning and saw the headline in the wall street journal saying that afghan officials are reporting that taliban leader mullah omar is dead i it i was instantly put in mind of that saturday night live sketch about Generalissimo francisco Franco. franco um you know, and okay, so there are reports, um, a number of security sources in the Afghan government say that he died two years ago. And, and This of course, is Wednesday
1: morning recording this, we should say.
0: Right. And uh, of course, you know, he hasn't been seen um, in many, many years. So it wouldn't be a shocking thing. But I, I guess there were a couple of things that really struck me about this besides the Saturday Night Live reference, which was, of course, the first thing that came to mind. Um, but the second thing that came to mind is that Mala Omar's name is a name that, you know, some years ago would have struck fear in the hearts of Americans. It would have been the top of cable news. Um, he was one of these kind of uh, larger than life adversarial figures, the one-eyed spiritual leader of this uh, otherworldly Islamist movement, and today it's you know a little squib. Oh, he might be dead. Which begs the question that I want to pose to you guys, does it matter if Mullah Omar is dead or alive?
1: I think it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, matters only in the sense that we need to, obviously, whenever the senior member of an organization like this is taken out, I suppose we could count that as potentially a good thing in the grand scheme of things. But I mean, I'm with you. I feel like he's sort of he's not exactly relegated to footnote of history status right now but he's sort of his importance has been eclipsed by you know ISIS by Baghdadi by you know al-Qaeda in its current formation and its capabilities in Syria with the Khorasan group i mean i, I, I just i guess that you know to the extent that the Taliban or Haqqani still have us captives which they do have a few I suppose, you know, who is in charge might have some bearing on the negotiations uh, for that. But I, I don't know. I just, I mean, even this morning talking to sources about this, they were cracking jokes. I mean, one person told me, he said, uh, oh, sure, okay, so if he died two or three years ago. That's great. So it's the Taliban version of Weekend at Bernie's.
2: Well, but, so yeah. so look, I mean, if he really died two years ago and nobody noticed for two years, that's pretty good prima facie evidence that he doesn't matter all that much. And I do think the one aspect in which he does matter um, is that if you imagine a negotiated arrangement between the Taliban and the uh, Afghan government that would end that war, it does raise the question of, if you're not negotiating ultimately with him who are you negotiating and you with know. and We're and do you know who you're yeah. negotiating with is there this you know there's the 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 Afghan Taliban is supposedly run by this thing called the Shura Council of which he is the uh notional head and the question is if you have a a Shura Council without Mullah, Mullah Omar who's running it really and and who is you know, the current Afghan government really trying to negotiate with. And I think that probably is significant. But uh, clearly, at an operational level, the Taliban's a pretty effective force without him, if assuming he's really dead. And I, I'll, you know, believe that when they produce a, a one-eyed corpse. Um, yeah. But,
0: you know, I, I think you're right, Ben, that the question of peace negotiations is probably the most significant immediate implication But I guess Mullah Omar and the Taliban more broadly have a a historical significance and a potential significance going forward in that ISIS is built on the Taliban model, not the Al Qaeda model. The Taliban were the ones who had this fundamentalist vision of governance, of state building that was about using a very brutal form of justice to impose order on a war-ravaged population that was in search of order. And remember that when they first came into Afghanistan, some of the population was relieved because at least it was order. And, you know, part of ISIS's appeal is also this very brutal sense of justice that imposes order on war-ravaged populations. Now, you know, I'm not assigning positive moral value to that, but I am saying that the Taliban was the antecedent in some ways to ISIS, and so if we think about kind of the broader struggle against ISIS trying to delegitimize or pick apart uh, this movement, the loss of Mullah Omar as a sort of alternative spiritual, theological, political uh, source of ideas could be significant. It kind of leaves ISIS standing uh, as not only the most operationally successful um version of this model but also the most robust organizationally
1: that's a great i hadn't considered that because i mean a lot of the counterpoint rebuttal from al-qaeda when isis sort of says follow us and follow Baghdadi is like no we've already declared fealty to mullah omar and that's a real person who's alive and fulfills a you know official and a spiritual role and with him gone perhaps that does create an opportunity for isis to be like well you know, it looks mm-hmm. like this is all falling away. Right, and we're the, it. And the loyalty was that al-Qaeda declared, correct if I'm wrong, was to Mullah Omar, not to the Taliban organizationally.
0: I believe that's right. He's, so he's creates, the spiritual guide, so, so to speak.
1: So ISIS is, you know, by the time we're, we're done with this, maybe they will come up with a statement, but I'm sure they're watching it very closely.
0: Rubbing Sav- their hands Savvy tweeterers
1: that they are. Um, okay, so we will see. Um, let's move on. I'll do my wordplay next. Um uh, FBI Director James Comey, uh, in Aspen, hanging out with...
0: Tomorrow. Everyone was in Aspen.
1: Yeah, everybody
2: was... was Mullah... Did you see any sign of Mullah Omar? <laughs>
1: no, no. It's kind of
2: like a Where's he Waldo. He was talking,
1: holding, hoarding up at the trail mix bar. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he was... He was, he he was he going was, for the food. He yeah,
0: had exactly. a rent to bike He was out on I'm
1: so trails. hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, FBI Director James Comey in an interview with... I think it was Wolf Blitzer from CNN. And
2: can I, can I just point out that Wolf Blitzer... Did an unbelievably bad job interviewing yeah. Jim Comey. Um, I'll
1: just say in Wolf's defense, it's not like Comey was like giving him a lot either. But
2: no, but I mean, if you if you want to see a, like great. a great interview, the Sanger interview versus yeah. a bad interview of how to deal with a senior official who deals with classified information, Sanger got so much more out of um, out of Admiral Rogers than. Then Blitzer got out of Comey, and the audience never once giggled at his questions, whereas the audience was openly laughing at Wolf Blitzer. Ouch.
1: Well, I was funny, though, I will say this as a, like, a, I observe these things maybe as a reporter, and, uh, and David obviously has, a, I think, a pretty good relationship with Admiral Rogers. You know, they were, like, chummy. And at one point, like Rogers goes, like, now you can see why David and I like to do these interviews together. It's like, oh my god, yeah. you guys are just broing out right now. Well, and sound. and it's and it's and a it, creepy. And we I mean,
2: know I mean, one of your best sources, right? And the next yeah. time you read a David Sanger <laughs> source about NSA attributed to you know senior U.S. Senior US official, uh, yeah. I I think you can have some pretty good idea about who David Sanger is talking to.
1: I love it. No, it was, it was, it was you're right though. It was it was a terrific interview, and I thought. David asked a lot of great questions. But to Wolf's interview with um, uh, Comey, uh, the news, and, and Wolf noted at the time, was that Comey says that ISIS is a greater threat to the U.S. homeland than Al-Qaeda. Um, Loretta Lynch, in an interview with Pierre Thomas from ABC News a few days later, echoed that same uh, sentiment, said so that she thought it was the, a bigger threat. And it seems like the crux of it, and I guess my question to you guys will be, like, <laughs> are they right? But the crux of the argument is, given... Um, ISIS's ability to recruit very quickly via social media, the fact that they have prompted, either directed or inspired, however you want to debate it, individuals to undertake attacks in the United States, that they're willing to recruit people whom al-Qaeda would never use without having vetted, sort of the speed and the rapidity of it and the way that it has grown, and the fact that they're communicating in many times in ways that the FBI says that they cannot monitor because of the encrypted nature of the communication, that makes them more of an immediate threat to the United States than al-Qaeda. So what do you guys think? You know,
0: it goes back to this conversation we had a few weeks ago about how do you define threat. Because when you cite all those challenges, which are real, those are challenges. They make ISIS a harder target for counterterrorism. They make it harder for the United States to identify and combat threats. Does it make ISIS a bigger threat? No, it makes it a harder problem. And and so I come back again to the sort of slipperiness of this word threat. Um ISIS threat is about intentionality, mm-hmm. right? Um and not just about means. And this argument that they're a greater threat I think is primarily about means. Um ISIS is focused on a local zone. And there's a presumption, and I you know, a lot of people at Aspen said this. Um, in their various remarks, the presumption is that at some point when ISIS has gobbled up territory and established a state, it will turn its attention to attacking the U.S. homeland. In the meantime, the recruiting and stuff it's doing for lone wolf attacks is opportunistic. And, you know, and they're, and they're being successful and it's hard to counter. But their primary direction is not toward the U.S. right now, whereas Al Qaeda's still is. So. I mean, from, if you're really trying to do a threat analysis, I'm not sure that holds up, but I certainly understand that it's a problem and it's a hard problem.
2: So I, I actually, uh, most people who are working on these problems in the intelligence community, I think, disagree with you at this point. And they regard Al Qaeda as still, you know, very interested in the high impact spectacular attack. But with the exception of the AQAP group, which has still uh, some capacity, they feel pretty good about the degree to which they have made al-Qaeda incapable of doing those things, at least for now. And on the other hand, ISIS is... Uh, has this very scary, I think particularly to the FBI, because the FBI, you know, Comey has said publicly that he's got open investigations in all 50 states related to ISIS, which gives you a sense of the volume. And he said in, in that Wolf Blitzer interview that he was dealing with literally hundreds of people, and Blitzer asked him, can you keep track of them all? And he said, absolutely not. And I think that is a very scary thing from the Bureau's point of view, the sheer volume of cases that they're dealing with. Now, it is true that each one of those cases probably amounts to a mass shooting, not to buildings falling down.
0: But at worst, it's also likely that most of those cases are just people talking shit.
2: Right, (laughs) right. And so, you know, you're, you're, the, 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 The capacity of each of those to do really, really terrible things is no more probably and in many cases much less than the capacity of a lot of, you know, gun crime in this country that we, uh, accept with more or less equanimity. That said, the volume is very different and I think the Bureau is very afraid of significant numbers of ISIS inspired events in a way that they're not afraid of of al-qaeda inspired events right now
0: i guess i feel a little bit like it's like looking under the lamppost you know because that's where the light is it's very easy to see these isis recruitment efforts and it's very easy to see
2: no we're going dark it's not easy to see
0: (laughs) right well we can come to that in a minute um you know and and so there's a lot of stuff out there but what I don't have any sense of. And actually, I would be surprised, you know, from all the conversation around me in Aspen, I, it's clear that it's still very difficult for national security officials or for anybody to figure out what's attractive about this movement and its ideas, um, and what's the line between, you know, playing around with the ideas and moving toward action, and how do you differentiate between somebody who's just talking shit on Twitter and somebody who might actually do something. There's so much that they don't yet know about the process that moves somebody from radicalization to, to violent action. And so they see a lot of potential out there, and I can certainly understand why that's scary from an FBI perspective, but I'm not sure that makes it necessarily the greater threat.
1: One thing they've, uh, this uh, kind of a last thought on this, that <clears throat> I haven't heard anyone in the intelligence community or the FBI specifically say, but it's always struck me about why ISIS is potentially scarier in a different way and then maybe more of an immediate threat, is, you know, after 9-11, I mean, I think I'm not alone in this, wondering when was al-Qaeda going to start you know, going in and shooting up shopping malls? When were we going to have suicide bombs going off? When were they going to attack a school? When were they going to do these sort of tactical, you know, kill 10 to 15 people? Which is a relatively low number by their standard, but just put such fear into the American consciousness and society that basically we became locked down and paralyzed. (laughs) And they never did that. They kept focusing on blowing up airplanes, and with the exception of, uh, um, uh, um, Shahzad and, uh, you know, Times Square with the car bomb, um, you know, kind of these big, big sort of transportation kind of things. But ISIS, it strikes, it strikes me, is the group that would potentially go walk into the shopping mall and kill 15 people, or the movie theater, or the school, and it just do it. And the only reason they haven't done it with a bomb yet is because it's just so much easier to get guns in this country than it is to build an explosive device. But that I would imagine that that kind of, sort of that, you know, that monster that we've all been worrying is waiting in the dark and like now being unleashed in the streets, that ISIS, that's their MO.
2: That's certainly the concern, you know, and, you know, whether, whether we are sufficiently used to gun violence in this country that you'd have to do, you know, something pretty dramatic over and over again to do it with guns and really get to people is, to my mind, an open question. I mean, we just had nine people killed in, in, uh, Charleston in a church, and, you know, the country went through some paroxysms, but it didn't you know shut the world down which is what you know terrorists want to do and then a few more mass shootings happened and barely anybody even noticed and so you know I do think there's a question of whether whether we mind gun violence enough for that to be an effective That's a Great question. Yeah. tactic.
1: Yeah. yeah, suicide bombs also I think it- I, it just speaks to a different kind of fear.
2: Right, and there is also a question of where you do it, right? I mean, so a, a small pressure cooker bomb that kills three people in the right place, in the wrong place, is uh, a three-day story, and, you know, it's bad, but who cares? Uh, do it at the Boston Marathon and have a big chase afterwards, and it's a huge international story. Um, and so I think the the question of how you know, how good tactically or strategically the radicalized person is in figuring out what the appropriate target is is very key to the way the thing is received. Right.
1: Okay, let's do our last wordplay. Ben, there was uh, smack-talking on encryption
2: in Aspen. Right. So, well, I wouldn't know. I was not there. We Um, read about it. Somewhere I heard that... you know, Jim Comey, in that conversation with Blitzer, reiterated his going dark concerns. But then in separate conversations at Aspen, where, you know, I was not invited, um, the... Um, you think he has a little chip on his shoulder about I this, Shane? Know. I'm just... I say what Shane thinks. It's, it's, true. It's, um, it's true.
1: It's true. He's my proxy. He's like my... He's like... You're like Anki Peel. He's my anger translator. Right. Oh,
2: my God. So, um... <laughs> You know, uh, both former NCTC director Mike Leiter and uh, former DHS secretary Mike Chertoff uh, expressed significant reservations about the plausibility or desirability of uh, building in the sort of extraordinary law enforcement access that Comey is talking about. And I think this is interesting because these are both, uh, you know, quite senior... Former security officials, uh, both, uh, I mean, Leiter is a cross administration person, but Chertoff is certainly a Republican figure. And, uh, they both have, um, objections that sound in issues very similar to the ones that the lefty security people, computer scientists have been voicing. That is that you will undermine important other cybersecurity goals, um, by building in, uh, flaws. And in Leiter's case, uh, his attitude was not even that it wasn't so much desirable, but that the ship has sailed and that the, uh, the issue is done. Um, and so we gotta, you know, talk about other, other investigative tools. And so I think this is a very sobering moment for anybody who uh, imagined in the government that you were going to get a security consensus that this was important against a sort of tech libertarian sense that it was a threat to freedom um, and I I guess my question for for everybody is A um does this completely take the air out of Comey's balloon and secondly uh you know What's the, what's the path forward, if any, for those who are kind of making the argument that there's an encryption problem that, you know, the tech industry is going to have to deal with? Mm-hmm. If you can't get shirt yeah. off. Right. Or you is it a off? If you can't get lighter, you can't get Hayden. Well, you know? I was Hayden, too. That's Hayden right. Hayden, too, who, I
1: mean, let's remember was, you know, running the NSA at the time that the warrantless surveillance program was going. And, you know, as somebody who you would think is, would be sort of reflexively in favor of right. you know, government access to communications. It does um,
0: leave Comey kind of shouting in the wilderness. It does, and it? I think
1: it was actually—I mean, I, I think it was a bit embarrassing for him. And I, and I was—I was surprised with both sort of the the kind of the ferocity of the opposition relative. I mean, they weren't like saying he was a moron or something. It was just very—you know—they
0: were just raising questions,
1: raising questions, and really and raising the questions that have been raised precisely by Comey's critics. On this right. I mean, they issue.
2: sounded much more like Bruce Schneier and Susan Landau than they did like Jim Comey. I guess
0: the other thing that really struck me is that you got those two sides. You got Comey and you got people raising questions or criticisms. And there was nobody there speaking on behalf of the tech companies, actually. (laughs) There was no one on the program from the tech companies. And yet, I think a lot of those arguments got raised, which... It's
1: interesting. Yeah.
0: It shows, as you were saying, Ben, that there's a total lack of consensus inside the IC on this issue.
1: That may also speak to even just like a failing on, no offense to Aspen's part, not
2: inviting more Tech or, companies, to
0: or, maybe d- or maybe they they didn't want to come. Maybe mean, they,
2: maybe they look at tech companies and see sponsors, not participants. Well, that tech
1: could be it. I mean, in like, in like look, the, the chief information security officer of Yahoo, famously at a New America event, you know, where I'm a fellow, got up and got into it with Mike Rogers in this very public way during q and A Q&A, uh, about encryption and saying like, you want us to put backdoors in our products? What happens when the Chinese government demands the same thing?
2: Um, I want to point out that I was on a panel with the. Uh, With an official from, from Yahoo about 18 months ago at the Berkman Center in which she expressed exactly the opposite. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, And that's, uh, you know, so so there's
0: no consensus in the tech industry. There is no,
2: there is, you know, a fake, a visual consensus, but that's because tech companies have, have changed their own positions about this. And a year and a half ago, uh, this woman was asked directly if you could seal off Yahoo such that not even you could read what's in Yahoo's cloud. Would you do it? And she responded with horror at the idea and said it would be completely irresponsible to do that because you have no idea how many people are uploading child pornography to Yahoo and using it as a storage dump. And so, you know, the tech, the tech companies put on a very united face on this issue, but they're actually a little bit less united than it seems. And you know, Snowden has forced them to be, um, more, um, to be more belligerent on this subject than some of them actually feel or previously felt in any event. So I think there's, you know, division in every community except the civil libertarian community, it's, which, you know, has a position of principle about this.
0: You know, it, it makes me feel hopeful that there might actually be a path forward on policy in this arena if there is that kind of dissension on what appear to be two polarized sides of a debate. Maybe there's a way to, to find some middle ground.
2: So one interesting thing about this is I, I have... This is an issue in which, you know, listeners know I have not taken a, a, a position um, because I feel conceptually close to Comey, but I have deep reservations about the technical plausibility of what he's talking about. And I have written that repeatedly and tried to explore some of the issues. And I am now consistently described as, you know, on Comey's side of this, of this issue. And so there is this weird trying to force people into, into camps, uh, that, you know, I think is, is kind of interesting. People want this debate to be more polarized than it is.
1: I also think that, um, Comey, this, this, this persuaded me that Comey made a strategic error, where I thought he probably had, and now I'm convinced he did, and coming out and raising this issue but not putting forth a
2: more specific proposal. Well, so he he's not allowed to put forth a more specific proposal. But,
1: but it, it strikes me that there are ways that this could have been done. Like, the repeated sort of like comeback to him of many was always, You know, well, what are you doing? What's your proposal? What do you want to do? And it was always like, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, that kind of was the effect of what he was saying. And I I take your point on that, but it did strategically create this sort of vast surface area on which anyone could attack him for any number of Mm -hmm. reasons. And then for these people to come, you know, who were presumably, you know, philosophically allied with him and say, this is a bad idea, and just kind of undercut it, it just... It's very bruising to his case.
2: But on the other hand, and here's where the debate gets so interesting. So he does not apparently have Chertoff, Hayden, and Leiter, but he does have Democrats on the Hill like Sheldon Whitehouse and Dianne Feinstein and, you know, people who you would think of as in a very different uh, place. I just think it mixes Mm. the ideological space in a, in a, very confusing and actually think kind of healthy sort of way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be fascinating to watch this play out. Um okay let's go ahead and move on to object lesson. Why don't I go first? Go ahead, Shane. Uh I am I'm going to be away from rational security for a few weeks. We're we will not, weep bitter tears. You will weep bitter Traitor. tears especially when you see where I'm going, which is my object. <gasps> this is yes, I know.
0: It looks so
1: clear. Cry. Cry. Yeah it's it's kind of it's paradise, The rocky coast. This is, and you guys will see this on the website. Uh, this is the Monhegan Island, Maine, uh, where my husband and I and my mother go every summer for the past many many years and stay for a couple of weeks. Uh, it is it is like seriously remote to the point where the thirty five year round residents of Sun Island refer to the mainland as back in America. Oh wow! Wow, that's awesome. Um, there's like five pickup trucks on the island. There are no paved roads. Um, only, until, only in the past three or four years has the house we rent gotten Wi-Fi. It's really great. Two security aspects of it. One would be like this would be the perfect place to go if there were like a nuclear apocalypse. Uh-huh. Like this is where humanity is going to retreat. And believe me, like these people are both self-sustaining. And would be able to kill anybody who tried to get onto the island.
0: It definitely sounds like a good setting for like a Jim Clancy movie.
1: Oh, yeah. Or like, it, like cross with like a great murder mystery. Maybe
2: uh-huh. we should write a, a, a post apocalypse retreat to whatever to island. Hagen.
1: I think I might have to write it while I'm there. I Do it. It really is the kind of place too where like, and I, and I say this with all love in my heart for my very good friends who live there, like, if you ever needed to kill somebody and get rid of a body. <laughs> They, no
2: one you will heard it here first.
1: find you. But the other security thing I wanted to shout out is, um, uh, it's actually an artist colony. It has, for a century, been a place where painters and artists, mainly painters, have gone from like to, to paint dead bodies. To paint dead bodies exactly.
2: Wash on the rocky shoals. Uh, and I towards, just want to point out that Shane's husband has a whole thing about painting zombies. He does. He paints. zombies. And so this is this is actually true. Yeah. And so uh, you know he can go there and paint dead Paints bodies zombies. and then animate them. Yeah,
1: and if God,
0: anyone you listening... you guys are z- so morbid. I
2: know. How did we, this lovely paradise got
1: turned into The Walking Dead? They should do a <laughs> seventh season of The Walking Dead <laughs> on Egan. Uh If anyone needs a zombie painted, let me know. He does commissions. Uh, but there, uh, it's an artist colony, and uh, a really good friend of ours uh, who died recently named Francis Cornbluth. which is almost 90-something years old when she died, 92, was one of the painters out there. And Francis... When she was a younger woman, served in the OSS uh, here in Washington. She uh, was a translator, and the best part was I, I can't remember if it was French or German, but whatever one that she spoke was not the job they hired her for translating. I think it was that she spoke German. They hired her as a French translator, and she had like her French English dictionary. And her job was when all of these cables would come across, she'd have to find what keywords in them meant something to whatever bureau, and then shovel it on uh wow. to them and i wanted to interview her about this a couple of years ago and even you know nearly 70 years after her service she told me no and she said oh i can't do it i'm not sure how much that's still classified no <laughs> oh, that's adorable. <laughs> like, she adorable she is adorable she's a fabulous woman mm-hmm. and um yeah and there are like some other people there's a couple of retired uh ic types who actually live on the island
0: there's is such a novel there yeah right it's yeah. just great
1: it's awesome so that's my object lesson um We'll be for the next
2: couple of weeks, and you guys will carry on in my absence.
0: We'll miss you, Shane. I'll miss you too. Send us a postcard.
2: I will, I will. Um, who's going next? I'll go next. My object lesson uh is actually not a physical object, it is a contest that Lawfare has been is having this week, and Rational Security readers should get in on the fun. On Monday, I put together a list of to be helpful to the People's Liberation Army, a list of some interesting unclassified databases other than OMB data in the U.S. government that they really ought to hack and hope along the way to notify some systems administrators that maybe they ought to think about protecting these databases. Paul Rosenzweig turned around and wrote a second post suggesting some more. Uh, And we I refer you to those posts as really valuable things to look at if you're the People's Liberation Army and trying to think about data sets from the United States that you might want to steal. Uh, we then decided to open it up to readers, and we are having a little lawfare contest to see who can put together the best... Uh, databases for the People's Liberation Army to steal. We are getting incredible submissions. There is all kinds of fun, unclassified okay, intelligence. Jim target. Comey is going
0: to be knocking on your door. Uh, any no, actually, now. I
2: think I think we are doing Comey a favor by flagging a bunch of things in the U.S. government that really needed a certain amount of cybersecurity attention. Some of them are awesome, and uh, we're going to publish them all. Um, and so if you have a, a unclassified data set that you're aware of in the U.S. federal government that you think the People's Liberation Army should be stealing, caveat, and that you think the U.S. government should probably be doing a better job of protecting, send it to Paul Rosenzweig. The email address is on Lawfare, and we are going to publish this list. And the winner of the best database for the PLA to hack gets taken to dinner by Paul Rosenzweig and me. So join our contest. It's going to be fun. All right. Awesome. Tomorrow, your object.
0: Well, I know you two felt a little sad not to be in Aspen last weekend, so I brought you just one little piece of the Aspen Security Forum swag bag. Nice. Wow, it's nice. It is rare for a national security conference to have swag like Aspen Security Forum, but this is some good swag. I got an Aspen Security Forum backpack. I got an Aspen Security Forum hat and I'm observed so
2: left out this
0: very cool Aspen Security Forum leak-proof Camelback water bottle. That's awesome. All of it with That's appropriate <gasps> sponsor look branding. Ooh, look at
2: that Raytheon
0: sponsoring Raytheon's
1: sponsoring the Aspen Security Festival.
0: So I would like to thank all the sponsors of the Aspen Security Forum for the wonderful swag. And, uh, and I'd like to
2: share this with both of you. I want to know why Raytheon isn't sponsoring Rational Security. Yeah. They're I mean,
1: put, if, they're gonna, okay, if Raytheon is willing to put, like, their name on the side of a thermos, though, a very nice thermos.
0: That's not a thermos. <laughs> that's a, a Camelback, link well, proof I mean, water honest, bottle. Like, well,
1: but this, you're going to be, like, walk, going off on your bikes or your hikes with Mullah
2: Omar and the granola bar people. And, and like, Raytheon like will be there people, with me. Three people will see this. That's this right. show has hundreds of listeners. How many people were at the Aspen Security Forum? Not Shane and me, so minus two, but how yeah, many people were? A couple hundred people in the okay. room, I would say. The last uh eight weeks, Rational Security has been downloading uh on average uh, you know between six and seven hundred uh episodes uh, people the little podcast the, that, that could with a little podcast that could, we get lots of listeners. I think Raytheon should be sponsoring Rational Security. We're going to tweet what this out. What swag at them. are we going
0: to have? I I'm
1: just imagining Just imagine how this would feel like right between like two of our word plays. You hear me? Pause to say, "Rational Security is brought to you this week by Raytheon." This week, listeners can go to rationalsecurity.com and enter the promo code PATRIOT for 20% off your first installation of PATRIOT business. How
2: about about the promo code F35? F35. That's right.
1: No, the Chinese already have that. Uh, You too, you can get a free disk. People who sign up this week get a free ride in an F35.
2: Our rational security is brought to you this week by Raytheon. You <laughs> when you order uh, your F-35, enter the promo code Rational Security. Yeah, 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 and let them know where you found it.
1: Yeah. Even though I think Lockheed Martin makes the F-35. Oh, uh, wow. I'm sure Raytheon really makes something on it. Yeah, they it. make something. Lockheed Martin could sponsor us, too. I think we should. Also, have- I mean, I would also be fine like, if Harry's Razors wanted to sponsor this frankly.
2: <laughs> <As Franklin. laughs> Although they have a little bit less. Continuity with the Aspen Security Forum. I
1: don't know. Were I they mean, there? We have probably special. Forces. We weren't. We don't know. We must have a bunch of special forces people with big bushy beards that need a nice, convenient in-your-home sh- shaving delivery system. I'm a Harris customer. <laughs>
2: I, I I think we should. We we need we need we need a sponsor. Uh, if you are Raytheon, uh, come sponsor Rational Security. Uh, and we will, I promise you, get you more listeners than you had at the Aspen Security Forum.
1: Totally. Totally. Aspen is so over.
2: Wow. Wow, guys. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even have Shane and me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not bringing my 700 listeners, that's for sure. No, no. Call me Raytheon. Uh, That brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, you can get links to all of our great other shows on our show pages at uh, rational uh, at rational at dot com. That's where you can actually find it. You can follow us on Twitter at r a t l security. Whenever you download or subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or anywhere else, please please leave a rating and comment. It's a great way for us to help spread the word and to find out how we're doing. And we really appreciate uh, all of you, hundreds of people who have been downloading the podcast. It's great, and the podcast has been growing. And we're really grateful for that. Uh, the show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music performed this week by the Raytheon Rollers, <laughs> or it could be.
2: Could we be. would even kick Sophia Yan off for a week. Wow! No, we, we wouldn't do
1: that.
0: No, I don't think we could do that. We wouldn't
2: do that. We wouldn't do that. But we could. We, we you know, we we could do something like this. Please patronize our sponsor, <laughs> Raytheon whose research points to 3D printing for tomorrow's technology. You can find out all about it on Raytheon's homepage. you <laughs> giving him a freebie. I think we're
1: patronizing Raytheon right now, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, on behalf of my friends, uh, Ben Ways and Tomorrow Coffee And our sponsor, Raytheon. And our sponsor. <laughs> sponsor, sponsor. Yes, yeah, send us the check, Raytheon. Jeez, <laughs> what have we done for you today? Uh, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you again soon. <laughs>